0: Father, I thank You that we have Your Word before us now and open. Father, we thank You for the beauty of today and the weather and the warmth. We just ask, Lord, that You will keep our minds sharp and clean and clear and open to hear Your truth and to be washed, as it were, by the water and the Word. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for being our guide through this this precious Word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 17, verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is in the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And I've heard it said, and I may have said it here a week or two ago, that there is no testimony without a test. And there is no growing in our faith and our trust in God without difficult times, without trials. And so as we go into Psalm 34, 35, and 36, they make up a kind of trilogy of trust in trying times. They could be trying times that are little trials, insignificant, irritations, or they could be big trials. But in either case, the Lord is calling us to trust Him, to learn to speak the language of faith. So a trilogy of trust in trying times. We'll look at three Psalms, three different aspects of this. Psalm 34, trusting God in trying times in spite of my foolishness. In spite of my foolishness. Psalm 35 is trusting God in trying times to fight with a vengeance. Or to fight with justice. And Psalm 36, trusting God in trying times in light of... His righteousness. So we'll come back to those other two, but let's go to the first one. Trusting God in trying times in spite of my foolishness. Psalm 34. Look at the heading. A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. It's a great heading. Have you ever thought, you know, it's one thing to trust in the Lord, it's another thing to trust in the Lord when I'm the one who's being an idiot. You know, to trust the Lord to help me out of the situation that I got myself into. I sinned, I felt I made a stupid decision. And now I almost feel guilty to go to the Lord and say, Would you help me out of this? Could you straighten this out? Well, I know I messed it up. And I think it's one of the hardest times we have in trusting God when we've messed up our lives. We think, you know what, I can trust Him when it's all good. But I'm not going to ask Him to come in here and clean up this mess that I've made. Well, David understands getting himself into trouble, making kind of a mess of things, and then having to turn around and and go to the Lord and trust Him. We're told that David, tired of the hounding of Saul, left Israel territory proper and went into the territory of the Philistines to the resort city of Gath. And it's pretty funny how he did so. He just left, left the priest at Nob. He took Goliath's sword with him. So here comes David who knows what is he thinking and he goes into the city of Gath, Goliath's hometown, bearing Goliath's sword, mind you, an Israelite who has killed tens of thousands of Philistines and thinks that's a good idea. This is a good plan. You know, this is going to be a safe and secure place. And First Samuel 21 verse 10 tells us David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, King of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of one of, of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Akish, King of Gath. So David, what's he do? He acts like a madman. He feigns madness. He lets his spit dribble down his beard. He's clawing at the gate trying to get out. He's acting like a complete loon. And Akish says to his men, You know what? We have enough crazies around here. Let him out of here. I don't need more insanity in the city of Gath. Akish is his name. Now you may notice in the Psalm at the top, it says Abimelech drove him away. Well, Abimelech is a title. Akish is the name. Akish's first name, Abimelech, that means King fathers so technically, this is King Father Akish would be his name. And David had obviously forgotten who his king father really was. So he goes over to Gath. He runs to the wrong king. How often do we do that? We get tired of things or stressed out of things going on in the church, in the land. Things get difficult or trying. And we think, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm going to go to Gath. I'm going to go spend a little time in the world. I'm just going to take a break from church life and church people and church things because it's difficult there. It's hard. And I'd rather just be out there and gap. And we forget who is truly our King Father. We run for asylum, we think, to the world. And it's the most foolish thing we can do. It's crazy. Thankfully, in David's case, King Akish had no interest in having another madman to his asylum. So David gets out of there... And when he leaves, he goes, we're told, to the cave of Adullam. And it's there in the cave of Adullam and in the caves of the Judean desert at this point in his life that David's poetry becomes prolific. He writes some of the most majestic psalms from that austere mountain hideout. From the hard life of living there in the mountains, in the desert. The cave psalms. Psalms such as Psalm 6. Or Psalm 57, or Psalm 102, Psalm 142, and of course the three we're looking at tonight, Psalm 34, 35, 36, were likely written there in the cave of Adullam. We know at least 34, and there's reason to believe 35 and 36 were written there as well. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I love that verse. If we could live by that verse alone, it would change everything in our lives. You know, the opposite of faith is not doubt. Not to my mind anyway. The opposite of faith is grumbling. Grumbling. Complaining. Paul said, Do all things without grumbling and complaining. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. In the world. You see, trusting the Lord, faith naturally produces continual thankfulness. Because when you trust in the Lord, all that you get, all that you have, all that you receive, everything around you, you know is from Him. And you, like David, can continually thank the Lord, praise the Lord, and worship the Lord. And that kind of continual thankfulness, you know, it overrides grumpiness. It's happened time and time again in my life. If I walk down here grumpy, all I need is about three seconds of worship and suddenly I'm thankful again. I'm appreciating the Lord for what He's done, for what He's doing in my life. Maybe it's not a lack of faith that's the trouble at all. Maybe it's just a lack of praise that causes us to be so grumpy and to doubt. Hebrews 13.15 says, "...through Him then let us continually..." There's that word again. "...continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name." Verse 2, going on, "...my soul..." will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. That's great. When your boasting is in yourself or in your accomplishments or in your mighty deeds, it puts people down. But when your boasting is in the Lord, it lifts even the humble up. And David says, that's where my boast will be, in the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Let's exalt his name together. Who's David talking to there? I mean, he escapes from Gath. He's now in the cave of Adullam. But he's saying, let us rejoice together. Well, the answer is given to us in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to David and he became captain over them. So get this picture David is now the captain of a bummed out, banished, bedraggled band of brothers. And what he's saying to them, people whose lives have not worked out like they had hoped, people who are outcast, people who are indebted and struggling, he says, you know, let's get out of the pit and exalt his name together. Let's do this together as a fellowship. That's what we say to each other every time we worship. When we congregate, when we gather together in worship, we're saying to each other, look, we all have struggles, we all have trials in our lives, let's not stay in the pit. Let's exalt the Lord. Because as you know, exalting the Lord has this wonderful way of lifting you up, of lifting others up around you. So David is saying to his, to his men, these, these bummed out guys, he's saying, come on, come on, I know, I know how it feels, I, I could be bummed too, but let's continually praise God. Let's do this together. Verse 5, David says, "...they looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed." Well, now who's he talking about? He's talking about those who have trusted the Lord. He's implying something here. Perhaps great-grandpa Boaz and great-granny Ruth. People who trusted the Lord and their faces were radiant for it. Perhaps Hannah and her son Samuel, or maybe Moses, whose face literally radiated. Maybe he's thinking of Jacob or Joseph or Sarah or Abraham or any number of what Hebrews 12.1 calls that great cloud of witnesses. David says they looked to him and they were radiant. And that's what it takes. You want to be radiant in life? You look to the Lord. Because in simply looking to the Lord, our faces begin to reflect Him. We've talked about this recently. 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. They look to the Lord David said and you could tell their faces were just radiant. And as we look to him that's what happens. We begin to take the image of his glory on our own faces. But it won't happen if you're not looking to Him. So you can believe in Him. You can be consistent in your church attendance. You can be there singing every song in worship. You can do Bible study and you can read and have devotional time. But if you're not translating into relationship with the Father, if you're not looking at Him, that radiance is lost. It truly takes a walking, working, living relationship with God. To bring about the kind of radiance I believe David is talking about here. He says in verse 6 of himself, he said, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. I love that picture. The Israelites, in their 40-year journey through the desert, they encamped around the Lord they encamped around the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies. Right dead center in the middle of all the Israelites. God said, I want to be in the middle of my people. But now David says something profound. He says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. Now you're in the middle. You fear the Lord. He's got your back. He's got your sides. He's got your front. He has you hemmed in as the psalmist says, 139, hemmed in behind and in front. The angel of The Lord encamps around those who fear Him and He rescues them. And and who is this angel of the Lord? He came to Hagar's rescue, Genesis 16 tells us. And by the way, let me just mention, Genesis 16 is the first mention in the Bible of the angel of the Lord. If you haven't heard this before, the principle of first mention is excellent to apply to Bible study. Principle of first mention: If you are trying to understand a concept or an idea or a phrase in Scripture, go back to the very first time it's used in the Bible and you will have enlightenment. You will learn something about what that phrase really means or about the character of the person being mentioned. This angel of the Lord shows up for the first time in Genesis 16. And guess who for? Hagar. Hagar, the handmaid, who slept with Abraham and bore Ishmael. In a complete violation of God's will. And she's out in the desert, cast out with her son. And she's weeping and worried and upset. The first mention of the angel of the Lord is not to a faithful father, it's to a female fugitive. Which tells you something about the heart of the Lord. We see him mentioned again, this angel of the Lord. He visited Abraham to proclaim the birth of Isaac in Genesis 18. He wrestles through the night with Jacob, this angel of the Lord, as Jacob camped out alone in the place that he would name Penuel, which gives us a hint, Penuel meaning the face of God, Genesis 32. The angel of the Lord, he came to people in ancient days as a messenger to reveal the counsel of God. The angel of the Lord came to receive worship, and he does and the angel of the Lord came to rescue the saints of old. And this same angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, revere Him, respect Him, hold Him in awe. Who is this? And I believe it is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus showing up. A Christophania, an appearance of Jesus there in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, before He comes in the flesh. That the angel of the Lord is Jesus. It's not the word... The word angel of the Lord is malach. Malach, angel, it simply means the messenger of God. This is not an angel, this is the angel of the Lord. Hold that thought, we're going to come back to it in a bit. Verse 8, David says, and a verse that's probably familiar to many of you, O taste and see that the Lord is good! How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him! Taste and see that the Lord is good. What a great verse. But notice that David doesn't say see and taste. He says taste and see. You're sitting in a restaurant and they bring the dessert tray out to you. Why do they do that? Because they know if you see it, you're going to begin to salivate and want it. But God says, no, that's not the way I want it to be. I want you to taste first. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because it requires a taste. I don't know about you, but that's not how I try out new food. I don't typically close my eyes and have Cheryl put it in front of me and take a guess, you know, at, at eating it and then open my eyes. No, it's, it's exactly the opposite of that. I see it first. Look it over. Decide about it. You know, years ago, George Carlin talked about such a thing. I don't know if I've ever quoted George Carlin in a teaching before. But he said he was looking in the refrigerator. And there was something there. And he didn't know what it was. And he called his wife and said, Honey, what is this? And she said, Well, smell it. It doesn't have any smell. What does it look like? Could be meat. Could be cake. It's meat cake. And he said, so I did something smart, I threw it away and saved my life. <laughs> Originally he was saving food, now he's saving his life. <laughs> anyway, I don't know why I went off on that, it just popped into my head. But David says, taste, and you will see. Taste first. What does that mean? It means that for all the facts and figures, the studies and scriptures, that ultimately we have to experience the Lord before we realize how good He is. I can tell you all night long how good the Lord is, but until you experience it for yourself, until you have been in, even for a moment, a relationship where you see the goodness of God, where you taste the goodness of God yourself, you're not going to understand that. Let me encourage you to allow people to taste, even before they see. What do you mean by that? Years ago, a man by the name of Hank Sakinga, some of you knew Hank very well, recently passed away from cancer Hank was the gargantuan man who sat up here with the tiny little guitar and amazed people for years here at the bridge and Hank the first time I saw him was in a Bible study in the book of Daniel in a small coffee shop in Anacortes his friends Mark and Susan Harris talked him into coming to the Bible study and sitting down and and hearing and Hank at that time was just not believing wasn't walking with the Lord didn't really have any sense of that and when they came in and they brought him, and after they left, Mark mentioned to me, yeah, he's, he hasn't been in church in years, and so this is kind of a first-time thing. And I'm like, <laughs> Book of Daniel? What are you thinking? And Hank never stopped coming. And it changed his life because he got a taste. I wouldn't have ordained that for him. I, I would have said, you know, tell him to run in the fields and the flowers and try to and experience the Lord. No, no, don't be afraid of allowing people to taste what goes on right here you realize that when we worship, people are tasting? They're getting a taste test of the Lord. When we take communion, they're looking around and they're watching. They're thinking, well, what is this? It's a taste test. They are able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Worship, Bible study, communion, they're taste testers for non-believers. Oh, there's something completely different for you and for me. But for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, bring them on. Let them have a taste of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You are proclaiming what Jesus did simply by the act of Communion. Now that may not be in your mind when you're taking communion. What may be in your mind is, I'm focusing on the Father, I'm confessing sin before Him, I'm, I'm in this place of remembering what He did, I'm loving Him, I'm worshiping Him. And yet, you're proclaiming the Gospel story every time you do this. Jesus says, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. So let people have a taste of the Lord. Taste first, see next. Verse 9 Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. You might want to underline that. For those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. David's out there in the cave, you know, out there in the Judean desert and there were lions and leopards that were out there at the time in fact far more than there are they're, they're coming back I hear but far more than there are today there were lions and David was probably scrolling out this, poet, and this poem and he sees a lion go wandering by and boy that's a hungry looking beast and he thinks that's not me I don't lack I don't want for any good thing Charles Spurgeon once wrote, He who praises God for blessings will always have blessings for which to praise God. I like that. But notice that when David writes this, that there is no want, that I'm not in want for any good thing, he's not in gap. He's in the austere mountain caves. He's in the desert, where you would think you would easily lack for something. He's not in Gap, you know, where there are stores and malls and Starbucks and Papa Murphy's. He can't just pop down to the local grocery store and get some food. He's out in the desert, man, and yet it's in this place that David says, I'm not lacking any good thing. But you're in a cave, Dave. You're in a cave, Dave. And he says, Yeah. Isn't it great? Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not King Father Akish who provides. It's King Father Yahweh. And so better to be in the desert with nothing and not lack than to be in the midst of the city of Gath with everything and lack what you really need, and that is a relationship with God the Father. It's not the amount of the blessing that brings the joy, is it? It's the source of the of the blessing. It's where the blessing comes from. So David says, there's no want. You won't lack for any good things, which basically means if you don't have it, you probably don't need it. So take the truck back, Les. (laughs) If you don't have it, you probably don't need it. I heard this funny song. Hayden played it for me, found it on YouTube. Perhaps some of you have heard it. It's called, I Ain't Got No Iphone. Have you heard this thing making the rounds? I hate my life and I want to die. I ain't got no Iphone. My heart is breaking thinking suicide. I ain't got no Iphone. Like a boat cap sizing, no hope on the horizon, got a two-year contract and I'm stuck on Verizon. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't got no Iphone. And it's a funny song and a spoof song for the way people are just chasing these things down. And yet... That's how the carnal man thinks. I want the newest, I want the latest, I want the hottest, the bestest, and it's foolishness. It's just plain insanity. What we have is what we're supposed to have. No more, no less. We do not lack in the Lord. Verse 11, come, he says, you children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, a couple of things crack me up about this verse. First of all, what children is he talking about? Gather around, boys and girls. It's story time for David's men. Come on, guys, gather around. He calls them his children. And then he has the audacity to say, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. They know where he just came from. They know the stupid thing that he just did going and flying a trade there in Gath, trying to make it in Gath. They know how dumb that was. And how he barely got out of there alive. And it was only by acting like a madman that he got out. His men know this. And now he has the, the bravado to stand up and say, children, gather around while I teach you of the fear of the Lord. And it's perfect that he says this now David is saying my own trials are teaching tools. My own problems, my own stupid mistakes, I will use those to teach you of the fear of the Lord. Because truly, it's it's not about me. It's not about what I've accomplished, good or bad. I have learned through good decisions and bad decisions, I have learned how to fear the Lord. And so I want to teach you, David's saying. And so he does. He says in verse 12, Who is the man who desires life? and loves length of days that he may see good. He says five things here. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. You know, Paul said that there are some things that are shameful to even speak aloud. We're out watching the movie and Paul's saying, you shouldn't even be talking about what's on that screen. You shouldn't even be sharing that that joke. There are things that come out of our mouths that... We shouldn't even say. David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You know, the little white lies that we all figure will get us off the hook for stuff. He says, thirdly, depart from evil. He says, number four, do good. And number five, seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Remember what happens when you look to the Lord, your face is radiant. Well, the eyes of the Lord, He's looking for the righteous. Make that connection. As we're looking to Him, He's looking for us to make us righteous. Something we can't do. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. Good words, but the timing is interesting. What right does David have to teach? Well, his right is that God is good and I am not. God is righteous and I'm a fool. Let's talk about the difference. He has a perfect contrast. If you look at me, this is the stuff I do. But if you look at God, this is what He does, and He's the one we are to fear. Remember, David is the leader of these men. They have come out to him. He is their captain. And their captain would say, "Don't, don't look at me. Don't follow me. You only follow me, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow the Lord. Let's all together look to the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We don't teach from our own faithfulness. We teach from His faithfulness. If you ever come in on a Wednesday night or a Sunday and you hear me teaching about how faithful I've been over the last week, just stand up and walk out. We don't teach from our faithfulness, but from His. As Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Well, David could just as well say, you've seen where I've been foolish, look where I am now, I'm forgiven. From foolish to forgiven, and it's the message of the Gospel. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their troubles, all their troubles. And I love this verse, one of the most tender in the Scriptures. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him out of them all. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. The, the turnpike of trust is fraught with potholes and problems and pains and difficulties. But the Father is tender. The Lord is tender. In fact, again, some of the most tender teaching in Scripture. This verse in Isaiah 42, verse 3, A bruised reed He will not break. A dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. That is tenderness. But right here, something happens. David immediately goes prophetic. He shifts into the prophetic here. As we go into verse 20, "...for there is one who understands many are the afflictions of the righteous more than anybody else." Verse 20, "...he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken." And suddenly we're talking about Jesus. "...many are the afflictions of the righteous, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken." It's one of the great prophecies that is quoted by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. Or I'm sorry, actually by John. In John 19, verse 33, John says, When they saw that Jesus was already dead, they did not break His legs. For these things, verse 36, came to pass to fulfill Scripture, that not a bone of Him shall be broken. And here it is. Psalm 34 verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, but it's not the only place that this prophecy originates. In fact, it originated earlier, back in Exodus chapter 12 verse 46, where the Lord decreed the Passover lamb is not to have any of his bones broken. It's very unique. And you have to ask the question, with all the offerings, why? Why are you being so specific? What's the big deal if we're we're slaughtering the Lamb for Passover and we accidentally lean on His leg the wrong way and, and it snaps? We're killing Him anyway, right? What's the big deal? It is a big deal. Because every offering is a cameo of the Christ. Every offering, every sacrifice portrays and pictures Jesus and the Lord decrees these certain things So that as we look back, we would see this. We see in the Passover lamb this Exodus decree that points us to Jesus. And we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago, a broken bone can't produce blood. But a bone that's whole continues to produce blood. That's where our blood flow is produced in our bodies, in the bone. Jesus' bones were never broken. Jesus' blood flow is continual and forever, covering and cleansing completely every sin. But this isn't just about the Passover lamb. If it were, we would just be content with something with Exodus 12.46. But David now, speaking by the Spirit, draws us back again. But listen again to the context. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them... Is broken. What's going on here? We are getting a picture here of the tenderness of the Father, even toward His own Son. This is an aspect of the cross that I hadn't thought about much. You know, I think of the cross as the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. We talk about the Lord turning His back as Jesus is covered with sin and filth. We talk about Him pouring out that anger and that burning, consuming fire. And yet, in the midst of all this, The Father's heart was tender toward His Son, breaking for Jesus. How do you know that, Rick? Well, Isaiah 42, verse 1, says, Behold My servant, speaking of Jesus whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights. I put My spirit upon Him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise His voice nor make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth righteous. Jesus is the bent reed on the cross. Bent but not broken. Dimly burning but not extinguished as three days later He rose from the dead to walk in that new life that He promises to you and to me. I believe what David's doing here by the Spirit is directing us to the tenderness of God the Father for God the Son. And saying to us as well, hey listen, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You will be afflicted. It will get hard. But know that I am not going to break you. I'm not going to snap you. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. David is talking about trusting God in trying times in spite of our foolishness. Man, if you do something dumb, that is still a good time to go to the Lord. If you sin foolishly, if you make a dumb life decision, and you realize you never even sought the Lord on that, and you've messed things up, man... Don't hesitate to run to the Father. He still tenderly awaits to help you. Now, as we get into Psalm 35, which is intimately paired with Psalm 34, let the words of Isaiah 42, which we just read, settle over you, that He will faithfully bring forth justice. And that's the theme of this next psalm. Psalm trusting God in trying times to fight with a vengeance. God will fight with a vengeance. Psalm 35 is a great psalm. It's a fighting psalm. And some have a problem with that. Watch this. Verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe. The spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. This is battlefield language, gang. Warrior talk from David. And he turns it into this poem, this song, this psalm, a fighting psalm. And he's talking about slinging stones and swinging swords and hewing limbs. He's calling on the Lord to be his warrior. But it's not blood David's after. It's justice. He is crying out for justice. Justice of the Lord. You know, I really think our culture has lost our sense of justice. That is one of the things that has gone right out the door. The fact that a a child molester has a shortened sentence of, I think it's five to seven years. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And, And I'll tell you where the problem begins with the whole justice system is when you do away with capital punishment, every other punishment has to be lessened. Every other one has to go down to make it fair. We have lost a sense of justice with all the peace activism going on. And please understand me. I know we need peace. And we need to pursue peace as Jesus calls us to. But peace without justice is tyranny. Peace without a sense of right and wrong is not peace. It's going to be someone lording it over someone else. And Christianity and the church, we have shifted to, to fit the modern mold. And it seems to me that justice is just getting lost and confused, and especially God's role in justice in all of this. I was just this just yesterday talking with a uh, a couple, kind of listening in on a. They were sharing a family discussion that they had a few weeks back, and the discussion was all about would Jesus go to war? Would Jesus go and fight in war? Would he approve of Iraq or Afghanistan and what all's going on? And the, the kids, the 20-somethings, were saying no, because Jesus is all about peace. And the parents were saying, well, you're 20-something. You'll understand more when you're you know, 50-something, 40-something. You'll get it. And Grandpa was there. Grandpa is a veteran. Fought in the Korean War. And they asked Grandpa, what do you think about this? Grandpa's a believer in Jesus and he fought in the war. And he said, you know, when you see the kind of injustice that I saw, you have to fight. You have to fight. When you see the kinds of things being perpetrated against human beings, you can't just walk away and let it stand. There is a call for justice in the world. Cabot. I thought Jesus was all about peace. Yeah, He was, His first visit. But all you got to do is flip to Revelation 19 to see what He's about in His second visit. When He comes again, Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, which indicates war, and He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and wages war. To think Jesus is peace only disregards not only some of His own teachings, but it disregards how He is going to return. And it disregards what Jesus did in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament days. And please understand this. Look further on this. Verse 5, David says, "...let them, speaking of the wicked, be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on." Let their way be dark and slippery. I like that. With the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause. Note that. Without cause. Unfairly, unjustly, David says, they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall and Jesus is right there, right where, right there in the Psalms. One of the reasons Psalms 34 and 35 are paired together is the use of a name that is not used anywhere else in the Psalms, only in Psalm 34 and 35, and that is Malach Yahweh, the Angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, the Angel of the Lord again, who revealed the counsel of God in the Old Testament. Who received worship in the Old Testament. Who rescued the saints of old. This was not just any angel. A Christophany, Jesus appearing at that time. And you can study that out. I encourage you to do that. But as David prays down curses against his enemy, what he's doing here is he's calling for the judgment and the contention of the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, Jesus, fight for me. Go before me. Be my captain. John 5.22, Jesus Himself said, Not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment. Romans 12.19, Paul writes, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Says the Lord, yes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Lord will execute vengeance and justice and it will be perfect and right. Now I realize we're in a different time, a different age than David. And I realize as Christians we do have a call. If if we can accept it, and that is as far as it's possible to be at peace with all men. Paul says that. And our battlefield. Our battlefield is slightly different than David's. His was more of a physical battlefield, fighting against the physical enemies of Israel. Our battlefield is a spiritual one. And I shared before, as you come across the Psalms that are warrior Psalms like this, fighting Psalms, apply them spiritually as well, especially. Apply them to fighting against the enemy. How do we do that? How do we fight an enemy unseen? How do we go head-to-head with Satan? Who we don't visualize. We don't, we don't see him. We only see the results. How do we deal with him lurking in the alleyways and the byways of gas of this present world? We do it by calling on the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call on the authority of Jesus. We ask Jesus to fight for us, to go before us, to be our strength and our shield. May I, may I just challenge you with something here tonight? First of all, when it comes to our midweek meetings, our services, please consider staying and praying. Stay and pray. I, every weekend, because I don't want anybody to feel bound or, or caught, especially if I teach long, I don't want to feel like, ah, oh, yeah, i got to stay, we're doing the prayer thing. but And so every week, and Les and I have talked about this, I've been kind of, hey, if you need to leave, leave, that's cool, whatever. Because we don't want anybody to feel like they have to. But I'm asking you from a spiritual place to stay and pray. The extra 10 minutes that we get when we head out the door as soon as the teaching's over is not going to make any difference in your life. But I'll tell you what, the extra 10 minutes spent in spiritual warfare is making a difference. It changes things. We may not see it, we may not be aware of it. But it does make a difference when God's people pray. And the second thing is, first, stay and pray. But secondly, if you don't know what to pray, just call on the name of Jesus. You don't have to say anything else. Jesus, would You just stand for this fellowship? Jesus, would You stand for Christians in this area? Lord Jesus, we need You to go before us. Lord Jesus, there are people lost throughout all of these hillsides, these mountains, these islands. Would You save them? call on the name of the Lord. I guarantee the more we pray as a fellowship, the more we will see things happening. The more the Lord will fight and justice will be seen and known. Verse 9, David says, and my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Oh, Jesus, You are my Deliverer. And so everything within me rejoices in the Lord, even at a bone marrow level. I like that David says this. Man, my, even my bones will say, Lord, who is like You. My bones are now talking. Where is he going with this? He's talking about something that is Deep. For my bones to praise the Lord. My bones are starting to realize when it's getting colder. They are. I'm 45 and all of a sudden the knees start to... ah, Okay, fall's coming. Or there's a rainy day coming because I can feel it a little bit. David says, you know what I feel in my bones? Praise. Worship. I love Him so much. My bones are worshiping. Now, listen to this because this is awesome. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You've heard this verse, I'm sure, no doubt connected to justice. The verse says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit spirit and joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so oftentimes we go to this verse and say, This will judge where we are. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. This will judge where we are. But there's something else in this verse. There's a nuance here that we need to understand. It means the living word of God also brings discernment to my deepest man, to my innermost being. It divides, it helps me understand in the deepest part of me, in my bones, my thoughts, and my intentions, in my heart, the word teaches me how to divide between right and wrong, and how to discern. David's calling for us to get down to a bone marrow level in our worship, in our faith, in our trust in the Lord. Verse 11, going on, he says, "...malicious witnesses, they rise up. They ask me of things that I I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul." He says, "...but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or my brother." I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. David says, when these enemies of mine were having hard times, I was praying for them. My heart broke for them. I was worried about them. I couldn't stop thinking about them. It kept returning to my heart, so I had to pray some more. That was my attitude when my enemies here were having hard times. Well, now that I'm having hard times, he goes on and says, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced. And they gathered themselves together, the smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing like godless gestures. (laughs) I love his description. Like godless gestures at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Who is he talking about? Who is this that David says, when you were hurting, I was praying for you. But now that I'm hurting, you're going after me. Who's he talking about? Well, At some level, it was those Philistines in Gath who feared David. They saw David come into the town and they wanted to drive him out, And so they started spreading malicious lies, going to the king, saying, he's a threat to us, he's a spy for Israel. Drive him out. But David's words go beyond the superficial threats of the Philistines. It goes out to his brothers in Israel. People, and I'm going to make a little assumption here, go out on a limb, but people in Israel who would say, we saw you go to Gath. You're a traitor. You're a traitor. I'm telling Saul. "No, you're, you're not one of us anymore. You left. You made your decision. You're out there. And David, he's got this coming in now from the enemy. He's got it coming from his own people. But I'll tell you what, these words are so specific, I think he's got to be talking about Saul himself. Why? Well, there was a time when Saul was sick and tormented and aching and hurting. What was David doing at that time? David was called in to play worship songs for Saul to soothe his soul. David loved Saul. In the interactions between David and Saul as Saul was coming after David a couple of different times where we see them talking David up on the mountain and Saul and his men down below and David could have killed Saul and he doesn't. And in their interactions, you hear in their voices, and especially in David, he treats Saul like a father. He continues to call Saul the anointed of Israel, even though David was anointed too. And David very clearly loved Saul, cared about Saul. And when Saul was hurting, David was there for him, praying. But now that David is hurting, oh, Saul's just continuing to go after him. And so David has nowhere else to turn. He turns to the Lord and he says, Justice. Just justice, Lord. Saul's chucking spears at David when David was praying for Saul 1 Corinthians 13:5 we can take a lesson from this Paul says love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Maybe there was someone in your life that you loved and cared about and, and saw through a hard time and then you went through a hard time and they turned around and started snapping at you love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44 Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do we do this? How how do I pray for my enemies when they're doing what David lists here? Slandering me? Gnashing their teeth at me? Smiting me? Rejoicing at my stumbling? (laughs) How do you pray for someone in that kind of a situation? Listen, incredibly important. Learn to differentiate who is evil and who is deceived. What do you mean? It's not the person. It's the evil one that's tormenting the person that's the problem. It's not the person who's speaking bad words against you. It's sin that's driving it. And it's the devil that's got a hold of that. Our enemy is no human being. Our enemy is Satan, absolutely unequivocally. He is the one who is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12.10 tells us. The accuser of the brethren. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6. It's against the powers and the principalities. It's against those. Let me put it this way: those who would torment you are themselves being tormented. Those who will come after you or come after me in anger or bitterness or slander, they're messed up themselves. That's how you pray for your enemy is you recognize he's, he's in a world of hurt or he wouldn't be coming after me like this. And so I can pray for him because I happen to know Satan's doing a number here. Learn to differentiate between the person and the evil that is driving the person's behavior. Jesus did this. He did it marvelously. Remember, he was telling the apostles that it's time, boys. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, and they're going to—I'm going to suffer many things at their hands, and then I'm going to be crucified, and then in three days I'm going to rise. And we're told in Matthew 16 that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "God forbid it, Lord! This shall never happen to you." But he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan!" Wow. <laughs> this was right after. You know, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, you know, for for claiming, for confessing me as the Christ. Right after that. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's harsh language. He says, You're a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Was Jesus slamming Peter, calling him Satan? No. Jesus was talking to the problem. Jesus was addressing Satan. Peter was just the guy whose mouth was being used in that particular moment. Peter was just the one who was blurting out what Satan wanted said. And Jesus was able to differentiate between Peter and Satan. This is not a Peter problem. He did not say, get behind me, Peter, you jerk! He says, get behind me, Satan. You have no business here. Peter wasn't evil. He was just deceived. And so Jesus called out the deceiver. And we can do the same in our prayer. Lord Jesus... She's angry with me. She's spouting all kinds of words against me. Lord, I know that she doesn't fully understand what's going on here. I know that the evil one is trying to mess this up. I know that he's trying to divide our relationship. Lord, I am praying against Satan or against whatever demon is working on her life. That's how you pray for your enemy. Verse 17 going on. He says, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long will you look on? You know it's okay to ask God how long. That's alright. It's okay. You've had a long day, week, life, month, whatever. And just to say, Lord, how long do you come? Could you come tonight? That'd be great. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages. My only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. David looks ahead to days when he will worship among a mighty throng of people. And he will. He will. Right now he's in a cave with 400 sweaty men. You know, this is the best they can do. But he is going to worship in a throng of people there in Jerusalem. And it will be wonderful. And David looks ahead to that. And there's a principle here. If Gath is grumpy... If the world is difficult, remember, glory is coming. Look ahead. If the desert is dry, hey, a fountain is going to flow. That's one of the ways I it's one, one of the reasons I love the book of Revelation. It's how I personally choose to bear up under the injustice that we see in the world. The book of Revelation that talks about days to come. What God is going to do when we're going to worship there at the throne. Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 21 and 22. Four of the best places in the Bible to go when you are discouraged. Because like David, you can say, I am going to worship among a mighty throng. I'm going to worship at a time... Everybody's going to be there. Everybody. It's going to be massive. Well, not everybody. Don't get me wrong. I'm not universalist. But it will be a massive... All the believers, all those of faith in Jesus will be there. Revelation 5.11 Then I looked, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was of myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A mighty throng. No matter what happens here in this gath-like world, You can say, Lord, I'm going to be where you are. Great encouragement. I will praise you among a mighty wrong. He says in verse 19, Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously, for they do not speak peace. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. And it's just like that today. Listen to that verse again and think about Israel and the Middle East today. They do not speak peace. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. The world continues to rear up against those who just want to live quiet in the land. Hey, I get it. The people of Israel right now are for the most part secular. It is mostly a secular nation. Although there is a a growing messianic faith in Israel. And it's marvelous. But I'm not saying the people of Israel are perfect. I'm not saying they're always right. I'm not saying they've never made mistakes. I'm not saying they haven't messed it up from time to time. But I can guarantee you, when you look back at the history of the wars of Israel since they became a nation in 1948, we talked about this recently as well, there's not a single war that was fought on the offensive it was always defensive. Same with all the wars of David. Always defensive, never offensive. Just wanting the heart of the people of Israel, first and foremost, is they just want to live quiet in the land. Just Can we just have peace? Shalom. Can we have shalom? The problem is, the people of Israel want peace, P-E-A-C-E, and the, the Arab countries around want peace, P-I-E-C-E. And not just a peace, they want it all. They want the land itself. It's the number one reason why peace in the Middle East is elusive is because the Muslim desire is to drive out Israel, not to live to, uh, alongside. Two-state solution, all that is is a one step closer to driving Israel into the sea. And you have this people, and it just jumped off the page of me, those who are quiet in the land. Could we just have peace? The Apostle Paul encourages us as believers to live that way. To just live quietly. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. In other words, keep your hands busy in the Lord's work. Peacefully, quietly. Don't go about stirring things up. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings being made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, Obama, all who are in authority, pray for them, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And by the way, if the political scene is stirring you up, Be sure you're taking time to pray before you act, You know, before you rally, before you do anything. Pray about it. Make sure it's where the Lord's leading you. If He is, go for it. If He's not, lead the quiet and tranquil life that He's called you to. Don't go looking for a fight. David didn't. He wasn't looking for a fight, but the fight kept coming to him. David didn't go to Gath looking for a fight. But when peace is threatened unjustly, David turns to the Lord and he says, I need your vengeance. I need your justice. I need you to fight for me. Verse 21, they opened their mouth wide against me. They said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. We know what's going on, David. (laughs) David says, you have seen it, Lord. They say, they think they know what's going on. You know what's going on. You've seen the truth, Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from Me. Stir up Yourself and awake to My right and to My cause, My God and My Lord. He says, Judge Me, O Lord, My God, according to Your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over Me. It's a great answer to anyone who would accuse you wrongfully. David calls on the Lord, but he says, Judge Me first. Judge me, Lord, so that my cause will be your cause. Verse 25. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha! Our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Why? Why? Is he just so full of himself that he wants to be protected at everyone else's expense? No. David was the anointed of God. As David went, so went the glory of God. David was God's choice to replace Saul on the throne. And so important was that anointing to David that he would do nothing to knock Saul off the throne. God would have to do that. But even in his own life... David is saying, don't let them rejoice over Me, Lord. Because it's going to reflect on You. Don't let them rejoice wrongfully, unjustly, unfairly against Me. He says in verse 27, No, let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor My vindication. And let them say continually, and here's the key, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of His servants and my tongue shall declare Your righteousness and Your praise all day. And that's the key for David. It comes down to this. The number one reason for David's vindication. The number one reason he prays that people will rejoice when he's justified is the magnification of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. You know, I pray that for the Bridge Fellowship. I prayed it with the county and the situation with the land that's been going on these many months. Lord, be just. Make us justified in what we're doing so that You are glorified. You know, vindicate us, Father, before the hearing examiner. Vindicate us, Lord. If things went to the Supreme Court, we would say, Vindicate us, Lord. Why? So that He would be magnified. So that God would be glorified. This was David's heart, trusting God in trying times to fight with a vengeance. Now, last psalm, and this is quick. Part three, trusting God in trying times in light of righteousness. The last of these three Psalms, oh, it's just great, 12 short verses, but it sums it all up in a wonderful contrast between the wickedness of faithless men and the loving kindness of a faithful God. First, the wickedness, verse one. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and do good. He plants wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. This is really critical to understand and it's what we talked about on Sunday. What David is saying here, he says... He says that transgression, literally verse 2, flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and his hatred of it. What? What does that mean? Transgression, the word means rebellious sin, speaks to the ungodly heart where iniquity, that is depravity, the sin nature resides. Rebellion speaks to the sin nature and it flatters him David says concerning the discovery of his sin nature. Again, what does this mean? It means that rebellion makes depravity cool. Rebellion justifies the sin nature or seeks to justify it in the eyes of the sinner. Rebellion rejects the sin nature as a bad thing. No, 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 no. All people are good at heart. We're all really good. And what you did that someone calls sin, hey, in another culture, might not be sin at all. Some cultures practice cannibalism. It's not sin for them. By the way, did you hear about the two cannibals who were eating a clown? And the one said to the other, Do you taste something funny? (laughs) The whole point here (laughs) rebellion makes the sin nature. As though it's not a bad thing. It's when it becomes in vogue to sin. And party up and cheat and get drunk and be sexually free. Oh, That's cool, man. And David nails it. That's what's going on. Transgression is flattering mankind in his own eyes concerning the discovery of a sin nature. We realize suddenly, I have a sin nature. I'm doing wrong things. But the rebellious nature says, no, 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 you don't. You don't. It's cool. It's cool. Party on, man. No big deal. Did you see the look on Lindy, Lindsay Lohan's face when the judge said ninety days in prison? She is shocked. Why? Anybody else would get ninety days. Probably should get more for the violation of parole and the drunkenness. And all, but the look on this starlet's face—what? Well, I just drank a little bit. What's the problem? I can't. I'm, you're sending me to prison. And it's the attitude of the world, gang, and watch it, we're seeing it more and more. Sin is not sin. It's mankind calling things that are evil and wrong and sinful and wicked as though they are not. And it is an absolute proof of the last days in which we are living. And the root issue is this, David says, in verse 1, there is no fear of God before His eyes. You remove the fear of God and sin will run rampant Here's the good news. The contrast to today's world is actually eye-opening. Verse 5. Your love, we just sang this song. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How high are the heavens above the earth? well it really can't be measured because where does it end and one end and the other begin once you get into the heavens and David says your loving kindness your hesed, your grace is all the way to the heavens it spans a huge huge space he's drawing a picture for us to understand listen I don't know the height of the heavens but I know we need his loving kindness to at least extend that far why? because We have a tendency to downplay our sins. We have a tendency to forget it in many cases. What would happen? Think about this. If every individual sin of our lives was put in a jar. How long until the jar was full? If every sin that we committed then was transferred into a barrel, how long until the barrel was full? I'm talking about the accumulation of sin over time that we don't even think about. Forgiveness, praise God. We have it, so we don't think about it. It's gone. But even those who walk in unforgiveness, they just you do wrong and then you shake it off. As though it's not there anymore. What if it accumulated? I looked this up. This is the interesting thing I found out online. If you took a piece of paper, just notebook paper, pen paper, and folded it in half. And then folded it again, folded it again, and continued to fold it and fold it and fold it. Once you folded it 50 times, go home and try this. How high would it reach? A single piece of notebook paper folded 50 times. First of all, you can't fold it beyond, some say 12, I couldn't fold past seven today. I got to seven, I'm going... How big, once you got to 50 folds, How big would that single sheet of notebook paper actually be? Some people say, in fact, most people say three inches. There are others who say, no, there's something to this. It's tricky. It's got to be at least a foot. Some will say three feet. You want to know how tall it really would reach if you folded it and could fold it 50 times? Could actually accomplish that? 93 million miles. The distance from here to the sun. I'm serious, go home and try it. (laughs) What if you could fold it a hundred times? Twelve billion light years. In other words, the approximate radius of the known universe. I don't know who figures these things out. They've got a lot of time on their hands. But it's a concept known as exponential accumulation. And my friends, exponential accumulation is what's going on in our sin life and we don't even know it. We have no idea when we sin upon sin upon sin upon sin how far reaching it is. Praise God His loving kindness extends to the heavens. And praise God that His faithfulness reaches to the skies. We need it to. We need to understand, and I'm pointing this out, not to make you feel bad about the mass of sin that's in your life, but to feel wonderful about the expanse of His grace. We sing amazing grace. It is far more amazing than we recognize. I don't think we will really understand it till we get home and look back and perhaps have a glimpse, I don't know if we will even get this glimpse, of how much we truly were saved from. But it's wonderful news that His loving kindness is this big, even greater than the exponential accumulation of my sin. His righteousness is massive like the Himalayas. His judgment's profoundly deep like the Marianas Trench. And the last statement of verse 6 would be incongruous in all of this if not for His grace. He says, you preserve man and beast. You preserve us, Lord. You're righteous like the mountains. Your judgments are like the sea. And yet, you preserve us. And not just us. Man and beast. It hit me today, I'm studying, I look down, Reggie. God's preserving Reggie, my little dog. You animal lovers, God preserves beasts as well as man. You know, it's interesting, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, And whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know what the word for world is there? It's not humanity. It's cosmos. God so loved all that He created. He's so pleased with all of His creation. Now that doesn't mean that all of His creation will not perish but have eternal life. No, you and I are unique in that. But David says He preserves both man and beast. Verse 7, how precious is your chesed. Your loving kindness, Your grace, O God. And the children of men, will they take refuge in the shadow of Your wings? Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather Your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and You were unwilling. Did, Did I tell you the story? I'm pretty sure I did. Actually, true story. I went back and found out. This was told by a a professor at Biola who grew up on a farm and he said the farmyard one day burned down and the next day they went out and as they were sifting through the debris there was a hunk of burned meat on the ground and he kicked it over and four little live chicks ran out from underneath it. The Lord says, how often I have wanted to gather you under my wings. That a hen would sacrifice her life for her chicks like that. Would literally burn alive covering those little precious chicks so that they might have life. And that's what Jesus did. That's what He did. That the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Verse 8, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see life. What is this? Indiana Jones and the lost fountain of youth? You make them drink from the fountain of life, from from the river of your delights. Listen, the Hebrew word for delights there is Eden. The river of Eden. Eden means delights or paradise or pleasures. The river of your delights, the river of Eden. Genesis chapter two verse ten tells us a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. You remember the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. In Jeremiah chapter two verse three, God refers to Himself as the fountain of living waters. He's the source. He is the fountainhead. When David writes, "You give them to drink of the river of your delights," for with you is the fountain of life. You're the source of all good, the source of all pleasure, the source of of literally of Eden itself. God is the fountainhead, the preservation and sustenance and pleasure and satisfaction in spite of my foolishness. And He fights with a vengeance and in light of His righteousness, which is how Jesus could say, John 7, 38, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from His innermost being will flow rivers, of living water because the source of that water is the Spirit of God and by the way the rivers of living water that will flow up out of us it comes up out of our spirit father and son residing there we're washed in the Holy Spirit given the spirit he dwells within us right His spirit dwells within my spirit. So why does the river of living water come up out of my spirit? just started reading a great book that Don handed me and I love the way this guy describes it. The river of life, the water of life, the Holy Spirit comes up out of my spirit and does what? Washes my soul. And washes my body. That I would make righteous decisions physically. That I would think with a washed mind. Because the Holy Spirit flows from within and floods me constantly that's how it works amazing but what does David mean in your light we see light in your light we see light this is absolutely key to trusting God in trying times it means that in the light of God in his light we see things as they really are when we walk in the light as he is in the light we see things in reality for what they are We understand we don't have a veil anymore over our eyes. We're not deceived. The God of this world blinds the minds of those who are unbelieving. No, we have that lifted, and in His light, we see things as they are. In His light, I see myself as I am in Him. When I look through the lens of God's light... Paul says, Ephesians 5.8, you who were formerly darkness are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's how He sees me. That's how He sees you now. He doesn't see you as dark and depraved and sinful and sick. He sees you as a child of light. And if you will walk in the light as He is in the light, you begin to recognize that in yourself that I am a child of light. I am capable of making light-oriented decisions. And in His light, I see other people the way He sees them. I see you as children of light. And it's marvelous. I begin to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ in a totally different way. They're children of light too. These are the people of God that I... Wow! There's a thought. We go home and tell someone who's not here, I was with God's people tonight. His people were there. I mean, that's a marvelous thing, and it's a truth. To see other people the way God sees them, Plato said this. He said, be kind, for everyone is fighting a hard battle. Hmm. Be kind, for everyone is fighting a hard battle. If I could momentarily shift into somebody else's heart... If I could for five minutes experience life as they were experiencing it, I would have a completely different view of their behavior. I would understand in a completely different way who they are and see them the way God does. If only I could view other people in this world through the lens of the cross. You know, if we looked at people that way, we would see other believers as blood-bought and clean and righteous and wonderful, the people of God. If we walk in the light, 1 John 1, 1.7, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. But listen, if I'm walking in the light, I also see people who are outside of Christ in a completely different way. I do not see them as the enemy. I do not see them as those who are trying to take down the church. I see them as David saw Saul tormented and covered in despair. And I want to rescue and I want to see them saved. And I do not see them as those who are against us as we hole up in the barn. No, we got to get out and save them because in the light of God, we see them as they really are, lost and hurting and captured by the enemy. And so in God's light, we go get them. Verse 10, we finish out. Oh, continue, David says, your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. And then he concludes with a harsh reality. Listen to this. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. And David, he concludes all this with the reality of hell. The reality of a place for the wicked where once thrust down, they will not rise. Why? I think David is saying that all that torments and tries and troubles the soul, all the evil and the wickedness, that comes against you, comes against me in life, all of it is going to a definite end. And it will end. Please understand this. Whatever your striving or your struggle or your heartache or your disease or your illness, whatever it is, it is coming to an end. A finality. And it will never rise again. And we will never again have to deal with the troubles that we have to deal with in this life. Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Praise God. Praise God. His vengeance. His vengeance will deal with this. And the the beast and the false prophet, they're there also for all the damage they're going to do. They are in hell. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then death. And Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Praise God! No more death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. I mean, this is harsh, but it's a reality that all that is wicked and evil and awful and sinful and sick in this world, David says, it's got an end. It has a conclusion. There is a great finale, and it will be over. But guess what? You won't. I won't. Children of God, sons and daughters of light. When we are troubled in trying times, we can trust the Lord in spite of our foolishness as He fights with a vengeance in light of His righteousness. And we're going to go on doing it forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the words of these psalms. We appreciate so much the heart of this man who loved You so much and who really was given Your Spirit and could see things as as no one else saw things. I pray, Father, more than learning will take place in our hearts tonight, but that there will be encouragement, that we will be uplifted, and that our trust, Father, in You will be lengthened. Even, Father, as Your grace extends over all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.